Hi, this is Corbo. Before we get started on this week's topic-focused episode, I want to call back to last week where we talked about the table of contents of the upcoming Hixun Draconis lore book. There has been a recent update on the HSD Tumblr with an expanded table of contents, a lot more details, more background information, and a stronger preview of what's coming soon. And maybe this is preparing for the Kickstarter, I don't know. But if you want to learn more about the lore book and what it's going to contain, how it's going to be laid out, uh, definitely check out the Tumblr. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you. Radio Free Deimos, an Ixun Draconis fan podcast broadcasting from ASEF Hall at Lake Voltaire on Deimos. Deimos, because nature adores a vacuum. This week's episode is Proficiency Check. We'll look at the skills, focus abilities, and the various expertises in HSD, and the weird ramifications they have on the world. Let's just start there, shall we? Okay. Actually, we could, like, name the host. That'd be kind of amusing. Uh, I'm Corbeau. And with me are Ashtar. Say hi, Ashtar. Hi, Ashtar. <laughs> and Wines. Hello. Okay, cool. Now that's done. <laughs> well, that's a wrap. We just barely scraped by the competency proficiency check today. Yeah. And none of us actually bought broadcasting as a skill because it's not on the list. <laughs> Express. Express. <laughs> I've got that one. <laughs> We've received messages from their spaceships. For a while, it came in as just a lot of jumbled noise. So first, we'll start with the mechanical side of proficiencies, uh, what they are and how they affect the game system. Stop me at any time, guys. This is going to be a little dry. Okay. The basic mechanic of Ixun Draconis is a handful of dice based on the size of your, of your stat pool, and the modifier of that roll is adjusted by the level of your proficiency in a skill, or the level of skill in a proficiency. I'm going to get those wrong all evening. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, a point in a proficiency can increase your percentage chance of success by something more than 25%, depending on your skill level and your level of competency in that particular statistic. And that is backed up by charts. It is. Graph. Uh, we have charts and graphs. Those are all available online. And science. With a dice pool of 3d8, which is fairly low, you have about a 35% chance of success. If you add plus one in a proficiency to that, it jumps to 60% chance of success. Adding plus two, it takes it to 77% chance of success. So even if this is your more or less your dump dice pool stat, you still have pretty good odds of making that roll if you have a reasonable level of a skill. If you have one die eight, then God's help you. I didn't even bother doing the math on one die eight. It wasn't very satisfying. Yeah. Then failure is fun. But it does tweak your numbers up by like, 10 to 15 percent, I think, for those lower dice pools. Mm -hmm. One quirk in the system is there's really only four levels of skill. It jumps from you, you don't know what you're doing, uh, better wear a life jacket, don't even try to talk, you'll just shove your foot in your mouth, uh, unskilled at plus zero dots, talented is plus one, and then you seem to have like basic PC level competency in drive or acting or whatever it is you're rolling. If you have two dice, you immediately jump to uh, kind of deep college education at that point. Mm -hmm. That's educated. And then at three dice, you're masterful. You have a postgraduate degree in your subject. You're starting to get special abilities, kind of like Dungeons and Dragons feats based on them. And at plus four dice, you're preeminent. You are the scholar in your field. You can start to declare when you want to succeed at something. You're not going to fail very often. You're you're just that good. And that's kind of a quest level of proficiency in a skill of proficiency to proficiency, which you'll never start off with. You will never start off with that. You might be able to start off. Actually, I think the game almost requires you to start off with at least one level three skill because otherwise you won't get those sweet, sweet focus abilities. Right. But by and large, you're not going to have a level four in a skill that is, again, a quest level item. I've always found kind of the skill progression in HSD to be a little bit abrupt like one dot, you're you're doing pretty well, and two dots, you're really really good, and three dots, you're starting to be, kind of that's that's like a character sheet, 
level trait. Mm-hmm. It's a character defining element. And I felt that progression was always a little bit, a little bit sharp, a little bit too steep for me. But that's an opinion. It is a shallow pool, but you are combining that with a separate level of advancement and a separate variable. So, well, like the number of dice and your skill stat dice size, right? Okay, and it is pretty hard in at least first edition to get those those dots. It yeah. takes a long time to advance a skill. Uh, one one pip every four or five games, I think, something like that. Even more if your game master starves you. Jacques. <laughs> But also that might be tied to the game's lore because characters don't tend to learn by going to school. They don't tend to learn by doing. They tend to learn by shoving an ocular implant into their skull and having the knowledge fed into the Keanu Reeves style. Maybe that's a much faster progression through the ranks of learning than just getting a series of facts on the subject. Literally, knowledge consumption. Uh, the, the fact that we've never done this in our game is just that we were too poor, right? Yeah. I, I assume the restricting factor is is money. For the most part, it is, yeah. Uh, we'll have to look up how much it costs to raise a skill. F- but at this point in our character's progression, it's basically a resource issue, mm-hmm. which is kind of frustrating because a fundamental aspect of our party's backstory involves learning being poor. Well, being poor. Uh, learning. <laughs> I was going to say incompetence. That too. Absolutely. But but learning processes is kind of core for us because we're like working on that as our mm-hmm. center conspiracy element. In most cases, it's assumed that your character has this two-part backstory in their history. There's the primary education and the secondary education phases of your character sheet development. Your primary education is more or less what it sounds like. It's where you grew up. It's your childhood friends. It's it's your larger pool of proficiency dots to spend. Also, this is a thing that coming from any other system is not going to be any help at all. This is a totally unique to this game system idea. Mm, it's it's pretty rare. There's not a lot of games that build your character sheet progression into your character backstory and history. And HSC does do it in a very deep way. I remember, I think, White Unicorn Games Star Trek which had a, I know, uh, that might not be, it's, it's something Unicorn Games, but it had a three-tier character phase progression where your childhood might have been on a refugee world, your training might have been like the Klingon Academy of War, and then part three was like your first away team mission or your first assignment. Hmm. And each one of those gave its own discrete chunk of skills and abilities and experiences to your character. Another one that does it is, in some detail is GURPS Goblins, which <laughs> wow. laugh with me, will you? Uh, I mean, I'm just happy to bring this one up. GURPS Goblins is set in uh, Georgian England, 1820s, where you play a horrible little monstrous thing that had very little personality at first, but every phase of your life is dominated by the series of abuses you've experienced. So your character was used to retrieve top floor things by being shoved up a drain pipe. Therefore, you're very tall and you get 10 points in tall and five points in climb. I think every one of your examples simply proves my point that you will never have experienced this before. <laughs> this is true. I've built characters in all of these systems, but I've never seen anybody play them. I'm not right. certain. I'm not certain that Grips Goblins is actually playable. It's more of a complicated joke to circle back. It is rare and it's uh, unusual that you're traits are tied to your backstory. And I think that does help you develop who your character is. Yeah, it's, it's a good idea to get people to think about what the background of their character is. Because yeah. I, I, I myself, I've been doing this for a long time, and I tend to just blank out on that, unless really prodded. It also helps direct PCs a little bit instead of, here's a pool of proficiencies. Pick five. It's like, okay. If you can't want to be the the athletic type, the bruiser, then we're going to direct you over towards Pulse, and that's going to give you this list of skills out of the larger set that you're going to focus on first. And then if you want to broaden that out, you can. If you want to double down, you can also do that. And if you desperately want to play against type, there's options for you as well. You don't have to limit these to, I studied at Pulse Academy, or I went to ASR Tech, or Progenitus Boot Camp, I don't know. These are simply pools of points for you and you can reinterpret that in any way you want to i think on the discord chat someone suggested that rather than looking at your character's stat pool from asr being the hours you spent workshops and training so you grow up 
on the streets of a very technologically enabled corp town. Maybe you grew up in an ASR corp town, but you were a, a street rat. But you had to learn how to jimmy vending machines open, and you had to learn how to tweak financial transactions to be able to steal money on the side. So you would have incorporated some of the same skills into your life, but your backstory might not have been, I went to ASR, I even have good relationships with ASR, you might be, you were a criminal in the ASR world. Okay. Primary education. What you learned before you knew you had a choice. If you're curious, your backstory is something complicated, like you went to a deep space grotto agrarian ranching society in orbit in the asteroid belt, for instance, not that anybody's taken that as their backstory. <laughs> you could have used that in your character build saying that you were from, let's see, what, what would have that kind of combination of skills? Uh, there are no animal skills in this game, you know? <laughs> But that might have been uh, another ASR because of the level of crafting and engineering you need to have in your life. Okay. Or progenitus because you've got some survival and such. But again, you wouldn't be necessarily using that as the corp town that you grew up in, but kind of as an analogy to the skills that you'd like to have, mm -hmm. the, the closest, nearest fit. I think that doesn't play so often in first edition, but from what I've been hearing of the second edition mindset, it's much more common there as just kind of a vague suggestion of what skills you should take. That also is a little bit more appropriate to the outsider, which I'll admit plays more towards some of the PCs and the backgrounds that PCs often choose. But for the most part, most of the HST population, most vectors are going to be from a corp town. And even if they're not if fervent believers in said corp town, that's where they grew up. That's the education that was available. So by outsider, you mean someone that's just outside of HST society? Pretty much. Okay. So your first block of proficiency skills is from your primary education. That's where you grew up. That was your childhood experiences, however you formulate them. The second block of proficiency traits and points is from your secondary education. And that is your postgraduate work. That's your first job. That's your character's recent history. In many ways, your first adventure is when you leave backstory and enter real time. So that's this is this is where your backstory ends and you start entering the real world. Or maybe it's what you're currently doing now. It depends on what your personal character story is. Your secondary point set is a smaller set of skills. It's more limited, more tailored, and maybe that's where you want to tweak out one or two things to add some real deep expertise to your character sheet. Generally, each corporation has eight skills that they're strong in, and you get to spend points based on that. The one exception to this is Marsco. Marsco is the big generalist corporation, and if you've bought Marsco for your primary education set or Marsco for your secondary education set, you can spend those points anywhere because you've trained in everything, and Marsco owns the educational publishing company of the HSD world. They have access to all the skills, but you're going to be spread wide. You're not going to study very deep, and you'll never gain like deep expertise by spending Marsco-flavored points. And if your character really doesn't know what he is, if he's kind of a drifter, the rules tend to recommend that you pick Marsco as your base because that means you could just go any direction you want to and tailor your character exactly how you need to be tailored. So again, outside of Marsco, each corporation has eight specific skills they specialize in. And these skills kind of define how the this particular mega corporation functions, what its flavor is. There's 30 skills on the proficiency list. There's 30 proficiencies on the skill list. The author really made a genuine effort to make the skill list useful in defining the flavor of the corporation. So each corporation has one or two skills they're unique with, some things they can't do very well. One kind of not too surprising one is that the Applied Science and Robotics Corporation has no social skills because they are nerds. <laughs> they're engineers. And surprise, surprise, Pulse has no academics. Not really surprised they're marketing mm -hmm. and sports. These are two opposed corporations and their skill sets do not overlap very much. Right. But there's some fundamentally arbitrary things that were tossed together in this skill matrix that uh, Pierce Frazier created. Uh, sometimes I think they're kind of comedic. So I'd like to break this apart and just look at what each corporation is good at, what each corporation sucks at, and kind of what that says about them. I have a chart. It's in the show notes if you'd like to see it. We'll skip Marsco because Marsco. Applied Science and Robotics. This is the ultimate nerd assembly line. They do not have any access to combat type skills and no access at all to social type skills. To, to mean to hand-to-hand -hand combat or combat in general? No, they just flat out have no access to anything in the combat family. They don't have close wow. quarter combat. Okay. 
They don't have range. They don't have security. They don't have survival. Security, for the record, is more about the processes of law organizations rather than censor sweeps and things like that. So it's more about knowing where the marching orders are going to come from and how IRPF is going to assign troopers and where to hide during a shift change, that sort Mm -hmm. of thing. It's not about um, technology at all. So, of course, they'd skip that one entirely. Okay. ASR is the only corporation with native access to repair, which is kind of scary. They have robotics, which makes a lot of sense, too. But nobody has a wrench in their back pocket except ASR. Hmm. Looking at these in terms of like gross generalities. So they're not really even very good nerds because they don't natively have access to the science skill. So they're they're practical nerds. Yeah, they're really laser focused on tech. They have a few nerds. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, nerds. They have a few generalist skills. Uh, ASR gives finance, pilot, and operate. And those are kind of generally useful things, although pilot and operate are kind of technology-focused as well. The real non-techie skill it gives you is finance. That's the only one that's outside of the toolbox. I guess maybe they are the ones that originally programmed the ledger sets, for all we know. Really, in this world, finance is a technology skill on its own. It's kind of computerized in these days. Mm-hmm. So really, their skill is as, as mechanical as the artificial intelligences they work with. This is kind of a funny one. ASR has Pilot, and their enemy corporation, Pulse, has Navigator. Ashtar's giggling. And they hate each other. Mm-hmm. So ASR probably flies blind. Looking briefly at Pulse, uh, Pulse has a few unique skills. They have Navigate, which is a surprise. And Navigate is not only um, like stellar navigation. It does have that aspect. It's also not getting lost in the steam tunnels, that sort of personal low-level navigation. So it's a very multifaceted skill. They have Sneak, and they have Swim. Those are native skills. Of course, they have athletics. They specifically have no access to academics. They have no access to engineering. And surprisingly, Pulse, which is the cosmetic surgery corporation, the body modification corporation, has no access to medicine. When Pulse offers do your surgery for you, think think twice. They they may not know what they're doing. Just walk it off. (laughs) And surprisingly, as the primary marketing and broadcasting corporation, they don't natively have access to Express. They do have Inspire, though, I think. So that kind of balances out. They're fairly social. So it's kind of part medical concern, part marketing machine, and part gladiatorial arena. Uh, They've got a good range of combat skills and a few general skills like street smart. Uniquely, Pulse teaches sneak. Spyglass does not teach sneak. I I don't know why. They teach swim. I guess that's useful in certain weird arena circumstances. And none of those unique skills really match up with their core identity as marketing and athletics. They're just kind of oddball things that they have in their back pocket. I don't know. Coming back around to Inspire really fulfills the marketing side. When you look at Express, Express is kind of passing along what you're feeling and projecting that. Inspiring is provoking feelings and others and really bringing them around to your point of view. So I think if you're looking for the core marketing in that, if you're really looking for the core marketing part of that, it is going to be that Expire, that Inspire proficiency. Right. Marketing people have nothing on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> They are empty shells. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Moving on to Spyglass. Uh, Spyglass surprisingly has no access to academics at all. They just don't have knowledge skills of any sort. No, no science, no medicine, no book smarts, no investigation. That last one is really surprising, I think, for one of the big information brokers in the system. So they have computers. That's the only tech skill they have. And ranged combat, which I'll buy that one. They are the single most social of the various corporations, just going by raw numbers. They have three unique skills. All of them are social. No one else natively is granted coercion, command, or deception. And it's kind of frustrating because deception and coercion are kind of overlapping things. They're both ways of getting your way without necessarily bending someone's arm. And they have intimidate, which is a great way of getting your way by bending someone's arm. Really, really social. And then they have a couple of general things like street smart and finance and things like that. The um, strangest thing on their skill list is that Spyglass is the one corporation that has command as a native skill, which is interesting because Spyglass is one of the least trusted, if not the least trusted corporations. But command is the lead people in combat skill. So that one is not given to Pulse. It's not given to Progenitus, who I, I find to be inspiring. It's given to the disreputable information broker corporation that has no rules and no laws. So one of those oddball things. And no primary sources. 
We're going back to your meme theory of HSD, aren't we? <laughs> so kind of the spies without eyes is how I'm seeing them because they have so little ability to perceive what they're doing. Wikipedia and real life. <laughs> no other corporation has access to anywhere near that many social skills natively. Spyglass has three, and I think every other corporation has just access to one, if that. So they're really very, very versatile when it comes to talkie-talkie. IRPF has no access to social skills. These are the police force. So there's no good cop, just bad cop, except they don't have intimidation. So, hey, there's that. So there's no bad cop either? No, there's not. They're just faceless people that don't don't speak much in public, and that's okay. Uh, they do have investigation. That's good. They do have security. That makes perfect sense. They have lockpick. I think lockpick is a unique skill for them. No one else has that one. Okay. So I guess that makes sense, given that they are the main investigators in the corporation. If you're going to have a hardball detective novel, it's going to need to be IRPF. They don't have a forensics branch. I know that because they don't have book smart, they don't have science. I feel like athletics is missing on their corp list, given their mercenaries. And sneak would kind of make sense. But again, these things are spread fairly thin. You keep calling them police force. Maybe it would help to think of them more as mall cop. <laughs> I feel like whenever you have a law enforcement need or a hired soldier, IRPF is there for you. That's, that's what they are. That doesn't necessarily mean they're good at their job, so maybe mall cop is the right word. I don't know. <laughs> this is an interesting one, I think. Only two corporations give access to medicine. Progenitus, which makes perfect sense, and IRPF. And that's kind of a surprise to me because that feels a little out of character for them. It is one of the things that keeps them more on the police force side instead of being on the guns for hire mercenary side. Yeah, I mean, that kind of make, it gives them sort of an ethical backbone that they might not otherwise have. Yeah, they are protectors. Well, yeah, they're protectors. And Pulse and TTI, who are both biotech concerns, don't have access to medicine. So in a certain way, this makes them feel more ethical and more heroic than they might otherwise be. Progenitus. Progenitus does not give access to repair in any way, shape, or form. They are totally technologically incompetent. They repair your heart, not your gear. That's probably true. They have survival, and that's the only skill they have on the combat list. So there's that. And that, that kind of makes sense. They're in war-torn areas. They're in combat zones. They're in hot zones. They're kind of the Red Cross of this system. So that makes sense. One odd one is their unique skill is scent. Do with that what you will. Progenitus only has access to Inspire so far as social skills go. Pulse is kind of the same way. So I'm guessing these, these two corporations must really believe their party lines. Felt like it is. Progenitus is a canine conspiracy. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell by their wagging that they're really into this. They do have book smart, science, and medicine, which is a huge block of, of cerebral skills, which is unusual. Most people don't have that kind of depth of learning in their corporation background. Science. <laughs> and last, and definitely not least, but probably weirdest, there's TTI. TTI has, I'm looking at my little chart that I've made, and all of the other corporations have some block of skills they just don't have access to. ASR is missing combat and social, Pulse is missing tech and brain, anything at all. TTI is the only corporation that's kind of evenly spread throughout all of the various blocks of skills. This becomes relevant later on when you're talking about buying uh, focus abilities because you need to have high skills somewhere in brain stuff to have a focus ability that's based on learning. You need to have a high skill somewhere in combat to buy a combat-related focus ability. TTI is the only corporation that natively has skills in every single block, except, of course, Marsco. They have close-quarter combat, but not range. That's a little weird, because this technology base that we have seems to focus on range. On the other hand, they're all from domed cities, so let's avoid blaster rifles, shall we? Oh, right. Yeah. They don't have medicine, which is kind of a huge gap in their skill list, because they're a biotech concern. They um, do have athletics, though, so... I guess they're agile nerds. They don't need to fix your arm. They'll just grow you a new one. <laughs> uh, TTI has one unique skill, fly. I, I really don't know why. That's one of the curveballs of this game system because they're from dome cities. I, I can't imagine them whizzing around the game in jetpacks. They, they seem too dour for that in my mind. They might have grafted on wings, but even then they're from dome cities. So I really think that Pulse and TTI should have switched. Pulse could have taken fly. That would have looked awesome on camera. 
and TTI has to navigate those deep frozen oceans, so swim would have made sense in the kind of Broadway HSD applies skills. These are opinions I have. So player characters really like playing against type, and these skill lists give some kind of interesting skill combinations and avenues for off-brand characters. Uh, I imagine the AV broadcasting and engineer type person who brings his talents to Pulse, who really needs the help, frankly, because they don't know how to run their own equipment. Uh, ASR could, I think, really use a street samurai type character, someone who's got the implant technology to uh, work the front lines for them. Maybe a battle cog. Just imagining, as you mentioned, a Pulse engineer. Uh, if you remember uh, the, the Apple, remember S -S Snake, Mr. Boogaloo's assistant? Vaguely, as a Pulse engineer. I just remember him getting into the, the control booth and kind of telling people when to play the red tape. <laughs> we'll have to link to that clip. If, yeah. it's, if it's even available on the YouTube, that's an obscure one. <laughs> well, the, the guy had jewels embedded in his teeth. Definitely Pulse. That was that was beautiful. For the for those that haven't seen it, and I know there's at least one person out there that hasn't seen it, the Apple is a dystopian... Dys dystopian future of 1997. Dystopian dark future of 1997, biblical allegory, disco musical. It's amazing. I think that hits all the major notes. Who the hell are they? They're nobodies, I swear. They're just a couple of kids from Moose Jaw. Moose where? I think it's in Canada. They're good. But, boss, for Christ's sakes, they're singing a love song. Love songs are out. It's just nostalgia. Nostalgia is always dangerous. Don't worry, boss. They'll never reach 150. 151. Okay. Yes, sir. Red tape. The red tape, sir? You heard me. Take this tape and put it on right now. And don't ask any questions. But if somebody sees? <laughs> then you're dead. Very dead. Uh, a spyglass research specialist would make an awful lot of sense, considering they don't have those skills, but would desperately need them. Uh, IRPF Central Command, the only social Gumby in the entire unit, who's got a microphone and orders people around. Probably got him from Spyglass, which they'd hate that. Or Pulse. Or Pulse. Or Pulse. Progenitus could really benefit from having a philanthropist-type character who's got some of the more devious social skills. Because overall, just having Inspire, they seem like they're kind of trusting and honest. And having that one matron with the deep purse and the long talons, I think, would really make a good story-type character for them. Sure. You could draw these extra skills from either your other corp option. I mean, classically, you could play like the progenitus person that got fed up with the dogma and switched to DTI later in their career when their parents weren't looking. A really common character background is, I grew up in Marsco and then I specialized, which is the way of getting access to every single skill, except for the one you want to have expertise in. You get that through your secondary. Every character has like two or three freebie dots they can spend on any proficiency they wish to, and that's another way to kind of go off-brand. Mm-hmm. One story character I could imagine would be a TTI navigator type who's got the soft skills to deal with the undersea bioprobes that that company works with and the cerebral skills to navigate the deep blackness under the ocean. Kind of an aquanaut for that company and their very strange cold world. Anyone on ASR who's used to dealing with a team, that would be an unusual skill combination. <laughs> Someone with command <laughs> or express... One thing I noticed when I was going through the skill lists is that if you want to be a shipwright, if you want to have access to a large ship dock and do huge repair work as part of your backstory, you need to have you need to have some of these balanced social skills because that's a combination of repair and express to command a large repair team. So that combination's got to be floating out there somewhere. The only other thing I really want to call out is while we're talking about the archetypes and we're talking about the kind of anti-expected characters, the Player characters really do have two different um, 
teachings, so the primary and the secondary education to mix and match from. So if you're going to go too deeply down what the core, say, ASR or pulse skills are, you're really talking about someone who has completely gone all in into pulse, primary and secondary. Yeah, I was grossly stereotyping for comedic effect during that entire <laughs> long ramble. Absolutely. I don't think too many player characters really look for to go full deep on one of the megacorps. That does seem to be a little bit more, this is what most vectors do. So the player characters are going to mix it up a little bit more. That also brings a little bit of an interest to a backstory. Well, I started over here, but now I'm off doing this. Yeah, I really feel like almost everybody's backstory is going to begin. I spent the first 10 years of my life in a Marsco town. And then I got bored. And then I got really bored because Marsco is basically... Oh, never mind. Generic. <laughs> Marsco is basically generic. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and then I got bored because Marsco is basically generic. So, yeah, I, I think it's it's ridiculous to assume that someone is going to monofocus on those eight skills. I was just kind of looking at that in terms of parody and weird stereotyping. It's good to know the stereotypes. One aspect of HSD that's tied to its history as an indie type game is that these skills are very broadly defined and applied. So as I said before, navigation is as much navigating in the dark of your house as you try and find where the bathroom is as it is the dark of the void between planets. And depending on what stat you pair things with, whether it's mind navigate or body navigate or some such, this skill can mean very, very different things. As okay. a kind I got to bite. What's body navigate? Um, we've done this game before, <laughs> haven't we? Body navigate. Let's see. That. Actually, actually, I can come up with stuff, but I'm, I'm not going to say. <laughs> well, let's see. If, if, you have to, uh, if you're running somewhere in a hurry and you have to kind of make split second reflex decisions, that might qualify. Hmm. You could argue body because acuity is the stat that's kind of focus and skill and perception. So body acuity navigate would be. It might kind of fit that. Okay. Anyway, uh, because they're so broadly applied, there's a couple of skills that are non-intuitive. And then there's some skills that are just completely non-intuitive anyway, whether no matter how they're applied. One of the big bugaboo skills for me has been in our campaign is finance. Because from playing years and years of White Wolf, I think of finance as the domain of bankers and such. But finance is... A proficiency that generates experience points in HSD. Mm -hmm. Functionally, it is a way to get stuff. And at least in Ixendraconis 1.0, stuff is experience points. Stuff is body modification surgeries. And stuff is the learning process because you spend cash to buy skill points. Yeah, everything. Yeah. So having a low finance is potentially very problematic for your character because it's going to make your monthly ledger rolls to see how much money you get a lot more subject to the whim of the dice. And when your entire table has low finance rolls, <laughs> yeah. they tend to be poor. Yeah, yeah. So you can't overlook that one. It's not for a bookkeeping character. It's not for a tax accountant. That one is your character's link to their future in some ways. I'm kind of glad that got lifted a little bit in 2.0 because I think the reliance on cash for experience is a real, real problem in HSD 1.0. It's a mild problem in 1.0, but it can become a very big problem if you have the munchkin at the table that goes, oh, wait, I know how to break this game. Yeah, and, and that's how you do it. No, who else at the table is going to major in finance and uh, the economy's economy? It just doesn't sound heroic. No, no, it doesn't. And the notion of you, I get more experience points because I invested in a stat that just doesn't sit well with me. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll grant that in the context of the game, sure, it makes sense, but it doesn't mean I like it. Yeah, it's it's one of the things that gives HSD the feeling of a kind of a first time product. It does fit the lore of the world and the technology they're describing because that's it's kind of matrixy technology, but it also just doesn't have a lot of game balance to it in this one this one specific area mm -hmm. it also is similar to some of the very first edition dnd second edition dnd where experience points were different for different characters and were used to try and guide different characters into different play styles right like like i was thinking about like the in old dnd the, the wizards who started off lousy but kind of snowballed by the time they got to a high level they were much more powerful than someone else. Well, took, th th that's kind of like somebody investing heavily in finance 
initially you're weak, but later in the game it pays off. Or if you go back again to some of the early editions of D&D, thieves got experience bonuses based off the amount of money that they stole. Oh, no that, other character wow. class was getting that type of reward. You got rewards for different activities. That must so, have seemed like a really good idea at the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of this is going away in 2.0. 2.0 does not have the economy stat block. It doesn't really have the ledger in the same way that 1.0 does. So expect to see this entire area evolve a fair okay. bit. And also to be fair, we don't really know how it would play out because our gaming table as a group opted out of finance. It fits your background. Sure, sure. But you know, for all we know, it, it works um, smashingly well. And just since none of us decided to play with it, we, we've never experienced that. Well, it does add a really kind of odd note to our specific campaign because we played in a resource-strapped campaign. In a sense, that means that we are not evolving as fast as other tables might. Although our characters are presumably experiencing the world at a breakneck speed, we're not really getting the, the advancement from it. Mm-hmm. I'm not blaming you, Ashtar. I'm kind of just saying that's a logical fallout of the of the spare resources, the low economy that our entire table selected. Uh-huh. But I'll point out that that's not exactly a problem either. That just changes the level of the gameplay that you're at. Yes, the advancement is a little bit lower than you would see at maybe core HST rules. But that means that you're still running around and dealing with people uh, very much on a personal level. Some of the people that are in the lower echelons of the corpse the people that are running around in kind of the fringes of society. If you were advancing faster, then the world would basically be leveling up with you. Instead right. of speaking to some of the people that are just kind of at the fringes or at the entry levels to the corpse, maybe you're starting to talk to people deeper into the megacorps, people with some more authority. Mm-hmm. Maybe instead of flying around in a glorified box, you're flying around in a glorified larger box. <laughs> but at the same time, you're still going to get challenges very much appropriate to your level. So I don't think it's I don't think it's particularly hurting the campaign to still be playing at kind of a lower power level. Yeah. Yeah, as long as we're basically balanced and all on the same table, then that's great. And I think that's one of the dangers of finance is that if you stack really high on it and then combine that with the economy stat block, you can one character can be much more advanced than the rest of the table. Yeah, it's no fun if you're running around with a bunch of street thugs and Batman in the same party. <laughs> yeah. Craft. Uh, Craft is a much more powerful skill than it looks like just from reading its title. There really isn't an artisan skill in Ixun Draconis. There's not a skill that represents knitting or fine carpentry. That's not really an industry, apparently. There's craft... Craft is able to create completely new blueprints and technologies that don't exist in the standard equipment list in HSD. It's the way to convince the Printomac 3000 to print out exactly what you want with the customizations you want. It's the inventing skill, not the artisan skill. Okay. And it's expensive. Yes. It's got its own section of rules and they are not free. So kind of like crafting magic items in D&D that yeah. you, you can do it, but you're going to be punished for it. That's a pretty good analogy. I think that's that's totally fair. It's a thing that takes a lot of time out of your character's life. I think that it may cost experience in 2.0. I'm not entirely certain on that <laughs> front. I should say these things about researching first. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a long-term investment skill, not a short-term fast-moving skill. Which is fair, because presumably the output of it is exactly what you need. So it should be hard to to get exactly what you need out of nothing. Well, it goes a little bit beyond that. You're also abstracting the concept of inventing. We kind of have an idea of where HSD is, both technologically and where their society is. Mm -hmm. We also have an idea of where, say, Star Trek is and Warhammer 40K is and sci-fi in general. Uh And one of the dangers, any time that you start... bringing inventing into any game system is there's the temptation to go, okay, well, I'm going to bring my sci-fi into where I'm playing now. Sure. There's a reason that HSD doesn't have uh, laser rifles. I, I don't know what that reason is. I don't know if that's just we chose it that way or we want to play with guns that have ammo, uh-huh. but there are no laser rifles currently in HSD. But there's the temptation of, well, I want a better rifle, so let me invent a laser rifle. 
And you want to put a couple of guardrails in around that. Sure. Or a lightsaber. Does anybody remember, I think, second at Dungeons and Dragons, this is the edition that had Tinker Gnomes and Kryn and a couple of spinoff products where they had at least three games that had, that had this elaborate crafting rule set with branching paths where you rolled 1d10 16 different times and... Oh, there's the sigh. There's the frustrated <laughs> expression. And if you rolled it wrong here, then the item would be 10 times the size you expected. And you rolled it wrong here, and it would have a major malfunction defect that caused it to explode. Or maybe it had some technological advance you were never expecting, but it was this weird Christmas tree-shaped chart. Oh, so your, your punch, punch dagger is now, now the size of your chest. Yes, or the size of your uh, wagon. <laughs> wow. I'm sorry. I, I thought a 10-foot punch dagger was exactly what I was trying to make. <laughs> I backstabbed with my ballista. I was wrong. <laughs> Another oddball one that doesn't really do what I'd like it to, it does some neat stuff, is command. Command sounds like it's a social skill. Command is not a social skill. Command is a combat skill that is in the wrong column. Uh, command is... N I want command to be the general leadership skill, and I don't think there's necessarily any reason why it's not, but that's not what the rules kind of lend it to. Instead, command is used to bark orders in combat, both hand-to-hand -hand melee scrums and ship-to-ship -ship combat. So if you have a high enough command, you can play the warlord-type character and order people to charge into combat faster and more efficiently, give them a bonus to their aim rolls, let them retreat or draw cover better. It gives you a huge ability to manipulate the, the tactical map, but it doesn't give you the ability to order someone around at a board meeting, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And it lets you roll many, many, many more dice in combat than your friends. So I think your, your, your table almost has to have someone that has command in it if you want to have a strong melee game, because that's where a lot of the strategic interest in the game comes from. Otherwise, it tends to be just kind of characters on a grid, but command adds a little level of depth that makes the game more than GURPSy, I hit you, you hit me type, type melee. That can be a little bit challenging, though, because to be using your command in combat, you do have a definite hex range. So if you're going to be in helping the meleeers, you yourself need to be a meleeer. You can't just be a back of the room, back lines, uh -huh, shout out commands. That's great. I like that. I, I want I want my characters on the board where they can be injured. Uh -huh. Yeah, I'm not complaining about that, but it is a, pit, a potential pitfall. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Uh, computers is absolutely required in ship-to-ship -ship combat because you're commanding drones. So don't forget that one. Uh, Lockpick covers pretty much any aspect of breaking and entering, including hot wiring vehicles and getting past computer locks. And if you're stripped naked, you always have one. Okay, well, there goes our iTunes rating. Thank you, sir. Uh, robotics can substitute for medicine when you're dealing with COGS, if that ever comes up. And I think security, I might have touched on this one already. I can't quite remember, but security is a very social skill and it involves kind of knowing how command hierarchies work and that sort of thing. I definitely have covered this already, though. It's very similar to street smarts in many ways. Yeah, I guess it's uh, staff warfare military is kind of what it boils down to. It's almost lore IRPF in many ways. And then while we're talking about proficiencies, of course, there's always going to be house rules. No proficiency list is complete. And in our game, one of the holes that I felt really didn't have a good peg to fit into was just kind of the low level bureaucratic, almost nonsense. But how do you work with the bureaucratic? How do you move into a new system and understand exactly um, what the procedures and policies are? How well do you fit in? So much of this really fits into community as a stat block. But when you get over to the proficiency side, community investigate, community street smarts, there's some fits, but I really felt that there needed to be just one little extra kind of a savoir faire bureaucracy, if you will. So this is the Terry Gilliam experience of going through the complicated maze of regulations. It also saves me from having to draw up 50 billion charts and contracts and everything else to do very low level and honestly kind of boring stuff. You want to deal with how to dock your ship at the shipyards, pay your tariffs and get in with the appropriate paperwork to pass in modern society. 
there's there's not a proficiency for that. I'm not going to spend 15 minutes talking about, well, fill out three, sign here on form F7. Anyway, so I went in and added the policy proficiency. And I don't really have, I don't think that's the best name for it, but I think that does kind of encapsulate just low-level administration, the, the low-level grinding, boring forms and understandings that make society work. And it's a nice little perk sometimes to also give a little bit of negotiation bonus. I feel like some of that was originally covered under book smarts. Like book smarts was a skill that gave you some basic understanding in law, but that also makes book smarts really kind of broad as an ability because you can have all the all the knowledge you want to, but not be able to navigate the university's bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Speaking as some part of that bureaucracy myself, <laughs> um, that's that's a good point. And if you look at the character sheet from the HSD rulebook, it's got two blank lines. So that leads me to the inevitable question: What was it? Bureaucracy? What was the skill called? Policy. Policy. That leads me to the inevitable question of what corp grants policy natively? Marsco. Oh, that's that's compelling. That <laughs> may be the only skill they have uniquely. <laughs> that makes sense because they are they're the ones that everybody writes the book on how to navigate their hierarchies for. Hmm. Interesting. I think the release date for second edition is something like a year from now, but it isn't playtest now. And if you go to some of the YouTube feeds that Pierce Fraser talks about in his Tumblr, you can see character sheets from second ed. They're very pretty. There's like a kind of complicated helix design on them. Really elegant, much denser skill list. Denser as in more skills? Uh, Denser as in fewer skills. Like there's only one or two uh, social skills as opposed to five that overlap heavily. I think it's close quarters combat and ranged combat. Those were separated out and originally they were combined as just the general combat skill. Uh, Pilot communication that covers everything. The entire social world is covered in communication. Uh, so subterfuge, which is not lying. Subterfuge is stealth and pickpocketing. And it's kind of like the fourth edition thievery skill because it also incorporates uh, palming things and sleight of hand and maybe some light juggling and things like that. Okay. So it's the being physically clever skill in some ways. Uh, athletics, go pulse. Uh, digital operate, which is the combination of computers and networks. Physical operate, which is drive and large bulky machinery. So those have been kind of separated out in, into what used to be the computer skill and the operate skill, but now they're kind of more codified and clarified. Mm-hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense. Sure. Um, logic. I like logic, and I think this might be your bureaucracy skill in some ways. Logic is kind of what White Wolf would have called enigmas. It's the puzzler skill. It's got a little bit of knowledge in it as well. And then protocol. That is a new skill for second ed that covers laws, corporations, and uh, weapon lore and things like that. Hidden costs. Uh, it's backed up by having knowledge from inside of a corporation like Allegiance uh, gives you in first ed. Science, still there. Engineering, which is the all-purpose making, crafting, looting, repairing skill. Practical science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Applied science. Uh, medicine search survival. So that is, so that is about 14, maybe 15 skills as opposed to 30. A lot of the weird redundancy is cleared up. Still no artisan skill, which makes me a little bit sad. I like creativity and I'm going to be missing express because that was one of my favorite skills in first ed. Maybe that'll come back or maybe there'll be some way to kind of fiddle that one out. It's, I guess it's bound up in communication right now, but I feel like the inspiring bard role is kind of its own stat for me. Every corporation will make you stronger in one skill in particular. I think you get a um, a D12 instead of a D10 in that one field. So for ASR, it's computers and logic. Pulse gives you athletics and dexterity. And they they pretty much line up with the expertise this, the corps currently have. So from proficiencies, the logical jumping point is the focusability concept. If you've played Dungeons & Dragons, particularly 3rd Ed and 4th Ed or White Wolf, or GURPS, or almost any other point by system, there's the concept of feats or advantages, and that's what focus abilities play out as. They're ways of really honing a certain aspect of your character or making a skill do something that it was never meant to do 
or just pulling some amazing tangentially skill related ability out of your butt and throwing it onto the table and seeing how it breaks the game. I would, I would definitely prefer the latter description because focus abilities are anything but some of the third ed feats, which are just kind of incremental bonuses. These are definitely the wild cards of the characters. These are things that you are doing that are not otherwise well-defined in the rules. Well, some of feats were incremental bonuses. Some of them took things in whole new directions. Well, and I think that depends on what focus ability you're looking at. Uh, some of them are simple bonuses to a roll. Um, some of them let you do magic. It depends on which one it is. Uh, in general, I think there's there's a strong tendency in focus abilities to have them be like dailies or once per session or once per scene, whatever a scene is in that particular moment. Maybe it's single combat sequence. The ones that give you a general bonus tend to be weaker overall, but more easily to apply. So like an anatomical knowledge gives you a damage bonus against living creatures. That's... Only once per combat, but I guess that's fairly frequent in certain in certain campaigns. Found your body, navigate. <laughs> okay, true, true. It's a small shielded thermal exhaust port. <laughs> <laughs> Some let's see, efficiency is excellence gives you craft in four hours as opposed to eight hours. Uh, so some of them are just simple enhancements to a skill or proficiency. Some of them do like deep and weird magic things. Um, my personal favorite is Powder Keg, which I adore Powder Keg. Once per day, you can cause a riot. I think that's a, a skill focus that comes out of the general skill set, not communication. So it's something that anybody can cause a riot. So the way focus abilities work is that somewhere on your character sheet, because you are an intelligent player who has read the rules, you have one skill that is at level three. Maybe you have two, but that's a lot of your starting dice or dots. But that's a lot of your starting dots. And if you have a three-point skill in, say, close quarter combat, that means that you can buy a focus ability from the combat family of focus abilities. So you have trick shot or something like that. If you have a three in repair, you can buy a focus ability from the engineering tree. And that gives you the ability to magically guess how much explosive is in a unit of thermite. I'm not making that up. It's one of the oddball ones. So if you want to get multiple focus abilities in the same area, you need to buy a second skill at level three or more. If you want to diversify, you need to buy a level three skill in like the combat sequence and a level three skill in social. And then you can have a focus ability from both of those families of social of focus abilities. And once the money starts flowing and the experience starts flowing, these start getting limited by mental strength and several other attributes. It's not a complete free-for-all. Right. Your brain fills up pretty quickly. I think you have, mm -hmm. um, I think it's tied to your, anyway, it's tied to one of your stats and can't advance past like mental strength or something, which is the same kind of limitation that you get with surgeries as well, like mind, mind augmenting surgeries. A lot of these go away in second ed to the kind of somewhat non-intuitive limits on your character sheet. The interesting checks and balances to a well-developed character. I'll, I'll accept that if I could ever actually manage to get these things on my character sheet. It's hard. I feel like there's, well, kind of like feats in D&D, there's a couple that are simple must-haves that if you're playing X type of character, you must have Y. Critical thinking, is that what it's called? That's the one that's the archery one. That lets you do really easy headshots in the game. I don't think that's the name of it, but... I'm okay with that. I might have gotten it wrong. Anyway, it, it, it gives you like amazing archery powers that make people's heads explode. That's really more of the sniper focus. For a beginning character, it is best used with the bow, with the compound bow, just because that is by default a single shot. But any of the weapons that you're using a single shot on and most of the long rifles, which you start upgrading into, use that. It, it really becomes the sniper focus. Another kind of must-have one for certain specific character builds is commanding presence, and all that does is it doubles the range of your command abilities, which is significant because that changes you from like 5 hexes to 10 hexes. Uh, you almost have to have that if you're playing a, a Battle Lord character, otherwise you're going to be in the thick of combat all the time. Which isn't a bad thing. No, it makes the strategy game more fun, I think, and characters that are on the other side of the board are not vulnerable. That may feel good at the time, but long term, I think it makes everything just more tedious. Right. It forces your entire party into a 
small bundle of PCs that are just so tempting to throw a grenade at. <laughs> yes. Kaboom. And then there are a couple of focus abilities that I think are just patently unfair to game masters. There are some powerful magic tricks in the focus ability world that I wouldn't even want them on my character sheet necessarily. Whatever is this danger sense is kind of like that for me. Let's see. Here's one. Perfect timing. With perfect timing, you can jury rig the universe to occur in the order in which you wish it to. Your personal timing is just perfect. When you step out of the curb, a taxi cab arrives just in time to take you away from the crime you just committed. And you can reliably declare when the branch manager is going to leave his office and go to get his uh, lunch. So it's um, you're really in sync with the TikTok of the universe at that point. Huh. It seems like a, a real burden on causality to my mind. You have accumulated cinematic karma. Yeah, once per day. Uh, the science of deduction. This one turns your character to Sherlock. You can do the ridiculous, oh, I see you have powdered sugar, and that was only made in this particular version of Vienna, and extract these reams of data from what your what your opponent, the person you're studying, is wearing, and the dirt they have on her shoes, and what have you. So it lets you deduce fabulous things from Minutia. Huh. Which sounds great in theory, but that really does kind of force the GM to come up with an encyclopedic amount of minutia at the drop of a hat. Right. And that is difficult. So I think basically with that one, you know pretty much everything that happened during a person's last day. I mean, all the major details and what's going to happen in the next few minutes as well. So you can kind of just take apart their world and understand where they're coming from, where they're going, which is a good power for a novel character, but not something to improvise. Ugh. Uh, evade. This one I, I really don't like. You can look at a situation and see how it's going to go wrong. So you kind of sense the ambush that's about to happen. Uh, you can find where the breaking point is and just back away from it. It's very hard to take you by surprise. Once. Once per day. Diversify. I like that one. I know you like that one. Um, in a game where allegiance is precious and your ability to negotiate with a corp is a plot level item diversify once per day or once per session i forget which gives you the ability to add three points of allegiance to your character sheet <clears throat> no it gives you the ability to to have three yes which is the low bar for employment i think level integration with a corporation so you're really able to have fairly deep access to information resources that don't cost money that sort of thing it's it's powerful it's really powerful yeah, it, it, it doesn't initially look like much, but it sure is useful. It has been useful every single game. It's one of those abilities that's only necessary once per session. So having it limited to once per session is not much of a limit. Right, right. It, it, at least it's somewhat limiting theoretically if the reputations or relationships with, with characters between characters and different corporations tend to go up. Well, this doesn't go up. This stays at three. Right. So over um, the course of a game, it could be a lot less useful. Right. But but yeah, early on, that that's that's a nice one. It's a very nice one. Well, and if the game master is introducing Lumen to the game, or has uh, mini corps that aren't necessarily well publicized, uh -huh. there are other corporate entities besides the Big Seven, and maybe this gives you access to those. We really don't know, but it's surprisingly potent. Mm -hmm. I think one of the stronger focus abilities in the game. Hello, yes, I work here now. Can I get a copy of the company credit card and your corporate <laughs> history? <laughs> on your guard. Oh, I do not like this one. Uh, on your guard, when you walk into a place, you can determine if there's a trap. Huh. Yeah. And out of place. This is a weird metagame one. You can sleep on it when you get home. And if you missed something during the game previous, the game master needs to point it out to you. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, not a fan of that one. Wow. Yeah, I, I don't remember seeing any of these things, but I've, I could see that as a player, I just would have glossed over them because they, they don't sound very appealing. Yeah. In fact, it, they sound kind of obnoxious. I know. It's kind of like divination magic or time travel magic or telepathy. It's just, it's a little bit too much. Or the get a clue roll. Yeah. Yeah. Get a clue rolls. As a GM, I'm not as offended by these. They increase complexity. If I just wanted to counter these, well, now you're just going to have 
two traps per session, or you've missed <laughs> two things per yeah. session. So you can play around them. It just... I'd be happier if these specific ones weren't on the table. I, I, will, I will make a case for diversify or, or say that that's probably, that one gives a lot of entertainment value, particularly in a setting that's very resource strapped. Anything that gives a character, either player knowledge or GM knowledge in this case, can be a challenge. I would not want to see it just randomly thrown on the table. But if it's something that as a GM I'm aware of and can work with, then it's not completely game breaking. But again, it does increase complexity. A lot of these feel like they're plot tools more than PC tools. And I think that's another place where HSD gives a nod to the rules light system. These are ways to shape the world, like you would spend a fate point in fate to change things. Uh, my favorite, again, is Powder Keg and always will be. That one lets you create a major scene that lets you create a riot. Use it sparingly. But when you need a major plot element, you have these things in your back pocket. The one that my character has in our tabletop game lets him broadcast on emergency channels. Useless in combat, but really helpful five minutes after combat. And these are tools to shape the plot as much as to enhance a character sheet. One of my defenses of, uh, in my head of diversify or powder keg is that, at least in my mind, it's something that... You that you can do. I, I want to do this. Whereas some of the other ones feel like going to the GM and saying, Hey GM, give me something more. I'm not telling you what I'm asking for. Just give me something more. So it puts the burden on the GM to, to add stuff. It's not like I'm looking for this in particular. I want this particular. They're just like, give me extra information. You, you hear what I'm saying, right? I, I do. I do. And I think the best focus abilities, and there are several that do this, they exist to advance the plot to let the PCs shape the plot and to give the game master tools to build the plot. They're places to let the P the players uh, take the reins for a few minutes. And that is, that is really cool. Right. But I mean, w when it's phrased like, you know, I want to find some telltale footsteps that have been left behind in the spilled so-and-so. Well, that's the, the player kind of participating, making the GM's job a bit easier. And it's up to the GM whether they, they want to let them pull this, this off with a, with a fate point or a special ability or something. But at least it's, it's the player actively participating in the story as opposed to, again, just saying, roll some more dice, give me something more. So in my notes, that last category was, quote, unfair to GMs, unquote. This next category is, huh? The big picture. You can learn the truth behind a news story without spin. And additionally, you can selectively edit news feeds. Now, this is a highly social media-enabled world, but that one is particularly bizarre to my mind. That is. The big picture. You are a vector who does not only watch Fox and Friends. The big picture. Your character wears a tinfoil hat and tells all the other PCs about it. Uh, thermodynamics. Thermodynamics lets you determine how explodey a pile of paper or plastic explosives is. <laughs> I spent character points on that. There is another focus ability that pairs with it, and together you can, like, work out ballistics really well. But on its own, that one is, is a, a strange one. That feels like one that a player came up with. <laughs> and the GM is just like, yeah, whatever, sure. Yeah, very narrow cast. Yeah. If we had gone a little bit more into engine or energy mechanics, that would make a certain amount of sense. Like, for example, if spaceships could consume all sorts of weird fuel, <laughs> but you never really knew just how fuely what you're stuffing into your <laughs> gas tank is. <laughs> We're gonna this run makes it. perfect sense. <laughs> We're going to run this on canola oil. <laughs> Free range canola oil. So I guess I'm going to wrap this up with a couple that I just really adore. These are all ones I would put on my character sheet quite cheerfully, which means that I, I bet game masters would hate them. <laughs> Reputation. People will believe almost anything you tell them within a single field. Just trust me, I'm a scientist. I, I really like that one because you can apply it to almost anything. Trust me, I'm a ballistic expert. <laughs> believe me, I have deception. Trust me, I know how, exp how explosive paper is. So reputation gives you the complete ability to lie within your field of expertise, which is kind of fun. Trust me, I'm a market researcher. <laughs> Who the hell do you think I am? This one lets you kick in a door and barge into the board meeting. 
I think it may have no other use than to kick open the door and barge into the board meeting. But it's definitely the focusability that lets you kick open the door. I know that part. A few modifications. This one lets you tweak any sensor device to pick up any other energy type that it normally couldn't once. So it lets you realign your sensor array with duct tape, which I think is so a hoot. Instead of picking up radio waves, it picks up mayonnaise. Uh, once. Ma- mayonnaise radiation, yes, or mayonnaise-based energies. We have to recalibrate the primary sensor array to pick up gamma radiation. I'm thinking you're definitely going to be bouncing something off the main deflector array with this ability. Only one man would jam our radar. <laughs> <laughs> and related to that is overcharge, which lets you, only out of combat, massively force a device past its warranty limits and its safe operating threshold, as determined by the story. I'd quote Scotty here, but I just can't do the accent. <laughs> yeah, I, I love all of those. They make things explode in different ways. Yeah, I, I want to add new one. It's just called "What Did You Do?" <laughs> That's all. Just, just for the lions. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you once again for joining us, and uh, to my lovely co-hosts again. Thank you for making it out here and uh, catchy outro line. Intro music is Future Club, and outro music is Chronicles, both by Serious Beat. This podcast is copyright 2017 by Radio Free Demos and may be used in any not-for-profit project with appropriate credit and notification. Check out our website, RadioFreeDemos.com, that's D-E-I-M-O-S, for more rambling, resources, links to official and fan-driven content, and our full catalog of episodes. And look for us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. This week's episode is a rare topic episode. Uh, proficiency check. Proficiency. Proficiency. <laughs> <laughs> proficiency. I can't talk.